welcome to Cycling Fashion Week, the only global podcast. The Kit Podcast is what we've been called. We're purely focused on cycling style, fashion, drip, uh, lifestyle, elegance, whatever you want. This is us, Cycling Fashion Week. We are back in the building during the festive season. You got your host, Alex. You got Warren. You got Tony. Gentlemen, how's it going? It's going well. I have my real microphone this time. But uh, Alex still, still doesn't. Uh, yeah, still so the the tinny, he'll, he'll, he'll have the tinny tin tin. <laughs> so we are recording this episode in the floating period between Christmas and New Year's where everyone is just kind of eating Christmas cookies at random hours, not really knowing what date it is. And actually, I, I don't know what date it is today. And I don't know when we will release this either. We're in this floating period again. But we wanted to do not a holiday episode, but maybe a New Year's episode. We're kind of recapping the year, thinking ahead about the new year. There's been some action as well, some news recently that we wanted to comment on. And just generally speaking, wish our listeners uh, a good holiday period and a happy new year. Unless you're doing the Festa 500. Yeah, that's the unfortunate part about releasing this after uh, New Year's or you know, somewhere in and around is that the Festa 500 will be done. And people who may be new to the podcast and, and, and haven't sort of gone to the back catalog will think that the Fest at 500 is still acceptable, uh, an acceptable event to do. They won't know that it's it's either miserable in the Northern Hemisphere or regular riding, regular vacation riding in the Southern Hemisphere. So, you know, for those listeners, if, you know, this year, if you did it, you know, maybe you'll get a pass because you, you didn't know, but now you know that uh, Festive 500 is a perennial canal that just is it's, it's an unacceptable activity. If you want to ride your bike in the winter, well, I think you're a bit foolish to go on the trainer. And I was happy that it seems we've had some influence on people's perception of the Festive 500. I think we, not to brag, I think we were among the first ones to really kind of poo-poo the Festive 500. And I saw on the Canadian Cycling Magazine Instagram account, they posted an article that they were promoting. And the title of the article was five tips if you're doing the Festive 500 and something like 20 commenters. It was a massive, massive ratio. Something like 20 commenters had a comment to the effect that tip number one, just don't. And I, I like to take credit for that. I think it was our influence on, on people's perception. Definitely. Oh, I'm 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 certain because you know sometimes people just need it, it broken down by three wise men, um, you know uh, about the, the realities of certain things. It's it's easy to get caught up in the marketing, especially Rafa's marketing, and we were we were able to sort of you know parse through the mainstream media and give the real information that cyclists are looking for. So speaking of the holidays, did you did both of you get any? interesting cycling gifts this holiday season absolutely not no <laughs> yeah i don't really trust uh people to like pick cycling gifts for me unless i send it to them i did order myself some kit from our, our friends at uh grin 27 actually so looking forward to that i forgot to mention in our last episode that uh our other friends at uh bbuc really really Unicorn uh, were very nice to send us some kit as well, like months ago at this rate. But I just wanted to give them uh, a shout out for that because that was a, a nice pre-Christmas gift and been wearing some of this stuff out in, uh, well, fall, late fall weather. And it, it was 
pretty good for Canadian fall, early winter. So, you know, not a Christmas gift, but it was a gift that I just want to say thank you to them for that and enjoying the kit so far. I got some espresso mugs, which maybe qualifies as a Christmas, uh, as a cycling Christmas gift. Now, it wasn't the Campagnolo Christmas mug, uh, espresso cups, but still that maybe qualifies as part of it. Um, you know, it would have been nice to get the the gold, the Campagnolo corkscrew, but uh, did not get that. I think it's, it's 2,000 euros or something. Tony and I are saving up to give that to you, Alex. Yeah. Not speaking of Christmas, but speaking of uh, the Festa 500, because there's actually another podcast out in the world, a cycling podcast, that also has, is now uh, trashing the Festa 500 a little bit for the similar reasons we did <clears throat> two years ago. Uh, which is basically like spend time with your family. You, you spend all year riding your bike. You can take a few days off. You don't need to do 500 kilometers in a week, which is, you know, probably a bit more than you might average in a normal summer week, depending on, depending on your lifestyle and whatnot. Uh, so this podcast, uh, the podcast hosted by two Australians that I have given a, or a chameleon to before, because it's the only other funny podcast uh, about cycling out there as far as I'm concerned they gave us a bit of a shout out in a recent episode except they didn't say our podcast name because uh, I think the the one of the two hosts called us that podcast that only talks about kit it was a positive shout out and we're very thankful for that but because of that I'm just going to say the podcast hosted by two Australians that's pretty funny it's about cycling they big timed us let's yeah, be honest they, here they big timed us <laughs> they big timed us but they gave us a shout out and uh I don't know. Maybe maybe we'll try to do like a, a collab episode with them in the future. They sort of alluded to that. Now I'm alluding to it. So maybe if we just drop into each other's DMs, it'll actually happen. So guys, end of year podcast, beginning of year podcast. This is the the time for resolutions or wishes for the new year. Anything that you would like to see more of or less of in the cycling world in 2024? I mean, obviously, I'd like to see less social media and photos, right? Like, I'd like to see more people just enjoying the ride for the sake of it. I do think uh, we're sort of heading that way with Strava. People seem to be losing faith in Strava. Um, I, you know, it's it's winter season, so I certainly, as someone who doesn't use it at all anymore, I certainly don't check it in the winter. Sometimes I'll, I'll check it a bit in the summer just to see what people are up to. But, you know, a lot of comments, partly Strava themselves with what they've done with their premium, taking things away, you know, uh, that, that people sort of felt were standard. And Strava is now officially a dating app as well, right? You can slide into random people's DMs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that might be the biggest turnoff for, for, you know, you're on a, you're, you're, you're on a group ride and, and someone, someone sort of meets you, gets your, gets, you know, you're, you're tagged in their ride or, I'm forgetting how it all, you know, how it all works, road width or something. And then, you know, it was uh, a, a person you, you thought was, you know, interesting on the ride and you start to start to chat them up. And I think that might turn some people off of Strava. But yeah, in general, I just think the sharing, I think let, let's get to just riding for its own sake, for its own enjoyment. You know, uh, again, computers, power metrics, all those things that I think are good to some extent, but should be at least put away every once in a while and just get out on your bike, not knowing necessarily how far, how fast, what your power was, and just, just enjoy riding and, and ride by feel. On Strava and less about New Year's resolutions, I, I've noticed in the last few weeks, I feel like they've taken away almost everything you used to be able 
to see on a free account because I didn't I didn't uh, renew my premium subscription this year and I had more stuff and then past few weeks uh more and more stuff has disappeared except I can message people I have had one single dm on Strava and it was from Italian Alex who I think sent it just to bother me uh and it just said hello or or what's up Warren or something like that anyway I noticed this year the year in sport where they do sort of the wrap up of all your stats and they make a little graphic thing. It's like a big ripoff of Spotify wrapped as, you know, a lot of companies rightfully do because that's a pretty engaging piece of content for the users. Strava made it a a premium feature this year, clearly as a way to try to get people to subscribe. But like, to me, that's just very dumb from like a marketing perspective, because the whole idea of Spotify wrapped is get people to share it and show they're using Spotify, listening on Spotify, et cetera. And so I think that's a pretty dumb move on Strava's part to just make it only a subscription feature. I'm not going to subscribe to see that. I can already see what my yearly stats are anyway in your free profile. So maybe next year that's gone too. I didn't, I mean, I didn't know that because like I said, I'm not using Strava anymore, but I get that they need to sort of run a, a business. They're probably looking to be profitable after, you know, just using yeah. venture money for the first 10 years of their life. So I do understand that like switch to premium and then sort of paywall thing so so it sort of forces people but from yeah from a marketing perspective if something is supposed to be sort of social media shareable which like you said these raps spotify raps are that's something you can't put behind a paywall like you have to let that because you have to push and show that people are still loving strava and they're using it and you know especially people who are really into sharing it they're going to have big numbers because they're trying to impress people so that I didn't know that, but that is a terrible idea. And whoever is sort of running that marketing strategy at Strava needs to be fired immediately. The reality is that they run a business that relies on people's narcissism in order to generate revenue. So it's perfectly natural that many of the more narcissistic features of Strava, namely flexing your numbers, et cetera, would become a paying feature because that is how they generate revenue. Um, so I think I, in line with what Tony was saying, I think maybe one thing that would be nice for 2024 is, yeah, less sharing, less narcissism in the world of cycling and more actually enjoying the ride uh, would be a good thing. When somebody shares their year in sport graphic, always, but especially this year on like Instagram, that is like an immediate mute from me. I, I'm muting you. I already follow you on Strava. If I follow you on Instagram, I know what your numbers are. I know you crush 10,000, 15,000 kilometers or whatever. Like I, so I agree with that. And then on a similar vein, what I would kind of love to see less of too is I, I feel like cycling brands are maybe it's the same amount, but they're just relying so much on influencers these days. And I would just like to see less of that, whether it's, I know they got to do marketing, they got to do photo shoots, videos, et cetera, with people. Does that always have to be an influencer who's got all these connections to certain brands? Like, is it that hard to just find people in a local scene? And I, I know we we boost Attacker a lot, uh, and that's because we like their kit. They just completed this project. They called it the Out of Office Project, where it was like a contest to you pitched them some idea to do involving cycling. You went and did it, and they gave you some kit and some money to fund it. Anyway, that just wrapped up, and it, they got some guy to do it who was going to like ride to six different peaks in the U.S. and then like hike up the peaks. But he wasn't an influencer. He was just some guy, as far as I can tell. Like I could be wrong about that. Where I'm going is I I just it's kind of 
shows that you could do content and you don't have to just have influencers. And I'm not saying, you know, they don't use influencers ambassadors, but it, I, I feel like I would just like to see just more content like that. The guy didn't even complete the project properly. And I, to me, that's almost more interesting than just like a photo shoot at the top of a mountain. I do wonder with the downturn in the kit market that many brands have talked about, notably the the attacker guys, when they came on, they talked about the the COVID and whiplash, you know, the boom in 2021 and the absolute bust that we've seen in 22, 23. I do wonder if the influencer business model is still viable. Like can influencers actually live off their partnership with cycling brands at this point? I kind of question it. I'd, I'd love to hear if that's true. If there's influencers out there that listen to this podcast, let us know how, how the business is going overall, if you can live off of it, or if it's just that you get a few free pieces here and there, and you kind of sustain your hobby doing that. I also want to say with the, you know, always love attacker, but I think that also that's kind of what the start of, that's how influencers start, like very mm, true. I, I don't know if they always sort of start, I'm going to be an influencer. It's like they kind of start with this adding a little more, you know, image or something to their rides. And then they sort of see, uh, you know, as numbers go up and engagement goes up, they start to see it as like a viable thing, right? Because mm -hmm. maybe a brand reaches out, they get a few free things. And then all of a sudden, it's sort of their primary focus. So it's an interesting thing because I think, I think also, and I was sort of, you know, besides us, that podcast that talks about Kit. It's, I think there's not a lot of great outlets, unfortunately, for kit brands to market because, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a fairly niche product, this kind of cycling kit, you know, there's not, there's, you know, magazines are sort of gone by the wayside. So you're not advertising in there, you know, a lot of them, the ones we talk about, uh, they're not going to get the, get on pro teams backs. They're not going to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. And so there's not a lot of sort of ways beyond the social media to do it. And as much as we lament it and find it a bit frustrating. I, I'm not really sure if there's another answer for these brands besides their own social media, but then using influencers to push their product or, or at least get, get eyes on their product. I mean, we're, we're obviously one of the most sort of important uh, marketing and use of advertising with the interviews we do. I'm sure if they were to share the metrics, the sales must just boom astronomically after they come on, right? Mm -hmm. We just such a, such a loyal, you know, listener base. Um, but I just think that there's, not a lot of ways for these brands to market and I, and social media is kind of the only way for them to get uh get out get the uh get their brand out and and i think that you know within their own social media and, and sort of you know advertising they can do on instagram or TikTok or whatever is you know only so much so they sort of push the uh influencer although i wonder one thing i was sort of thinking about on an aside to it is because the influencer, I don't know what kind of money they make, but they certainly can gain some uh, product or whatever from these brands. How do the brands vet the follower count? Because obviously that's a huge portion of it, mm -hmm. right? Is, is you're not going to, you don't want to give an, you know, you're not going to give all this stuff someone 300 followers. So when they have 12 grand, 15 grand, or, you know, 12K, 15K, is the brand checking and seeing if those are bought followers? Because there's enough, I feel like there's enough at stake as an influencer that you would there's always there's a risk you would buy those followers mm -hmm. i think that like you know so that that means that to me if they have then the brand if they're giving them stuff they're sort of devaluing because part of the idea is that there's if you have fifteen thousand followers uh, at some level there's they're getting a lot of eyeballs on their product 
good or bad, whether you like follow uh, influencers or not. So I, are, are these, again, maybe some of the brands that listen to us that have uh, ambassadors, let's be kind and call them ambassadors, can reach out and say, do they have a way to vet that if they're starting with someone and they see 15,000 followers, that that person actually has 15,000 or close to 15,000 real followers and not purchase followers or bots or anything like that. People that would actually, you know, possibly make a purchase. We definitely purchased our followers on Instagram. So we purchase our listeners. Yeah. We are an anti-profit podcast, not just nonprofit We're we lose money on this show. So we actively yeah. lose money purchasing listeners. The only other thing that comes to mind of like what I'd love to see less of is race and event prices to stop going up. Like I know flesh and all that, blah, blah, blah. Like and people are saying they got to charge these prices to break even and stuff like that. But again, I'll mention this podcast. We're an anti-profit. We are giving to the cycling community. If, you know, maybe run an event and lose a bit of money and you'll still feel good about yourself, you know? And, you know, we gave our good friend, the vegan cyclist, a shout out this year for uh, for running a free event in California, right? Now, I, I do understand at the same time, though, Warren, that you know, the cost of organizing these events is going up. You have to mm-hmm. sometimes get the local police to provide security. You got to get the food. You got to get the beer. These things have gone up in price and it's, you know, some labor is involved as well. So I, I understand this thing, but it's nice to see people like the vegan cyclist actually put out a, a free event out there. And, uh, you know, again, shout out to him for doing that again. I agree. I don't know if he's going to do that again, but I will say it's like, you know, most of the events I do do not have police blocking off roads. The roads are open. And Tony always says like, why do these? Cause you can just copy the Strava route and do it the next day or the next weekend. And he's right for the most part. And I get it. You know, some people are doing it because they want to do it with a big group. They, some people want to treat these events like a race if they're not an actual, you know, cross or road race. Uh, I'm thinking more like kind of gravel type events or, or road fondos? It, it's a good question. And I'm kind of feel like it might head that way if the prices keep going up. Cause like you start wondering like, what am I really getting from this event besides a route that is usually good, but not always, it's not a guarantee. Like the P2A route, P, P2A Paris to Ancaster is a longstanding sort of season opener gravel race, uh, outside of Toronto. And the price keeps jumping astronomically every year and it's the same route and it's not a very good route to begin with like they do use some private property so i get it but it's just so you can't ride it except on that day so there is some exclusivity there but like the route's not that good it's point to point you have to do like a car ferry to do it anyway that's the whole other event oh and also it's 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 like an open you know a big portion of it's sort of like an open single track where sometimes there'll be people like walking their dog along there or, I mean, one year, I guess there was someone who didn't like that, that cyclist sort of took over. So they cut down a bunch of tr- logs and, and they laid it across. Course. So, and fairly, fa- fairly large, heavy logs too, not things you just sort of push out of the way. So, you know, you, you're, you're going hard and then you get to this kind of bottleneck stop and you realize everyone's getting off and walking over these, these sort of huge trees that someone sort of cut down and placed. I mean, that, that's a bit of spite, which I respect the spite, but I mean, in terms of, yeah, like in terms of you're paying them money to just like, I just don't get it. Like I get the kind of big group, there's a feeling of it. And then to be honest, for my little bit of experience with, with these sort of gravel fondos, you only really end up in a group for like the first few K, right? When everyone sort of takes off and then eventually like you're, you're sort of with your buddies or maybe 
one or two people of your sort of speed, just kind of basically by yourself. Like you're not really. There was that time I pushed you up the hill at uh, D2R2 in, in Massachusetts. Yeah, we rode together, but we weren't really riding much with other people. Like it wasn't like we were in this massive group. We felt like we were in the in the Peloton. We, we definitely weren't racing the course. But <laughs> no, no, we were finishing no, we it. Were and, and we were more concerned with getting to the finish line yeah. before the time limit. Or... I mean, I almost think that that's really the only reason to do a gravel race is when it's outside of your locale where yeah. understanding the route difficult like d2r2 was great for us because we we're not from massachusetts and vermont yeah it's a fun um, weekend with your and, friends yeah. but also i don't think i mean i guess we could have like pulled the strava route but i don't think we would have considering how long and, and it's an area we don't know i'm not sure we could have sort of cultivated as well doing it so the, there's kind of this element where that sort of makes sense but like if you're doing something you know 45 minutes outside of your city where you kind of so when you've like something like p2a where people have done it for years and years and years and you kind of already know it you know it just seems kind of useless so i think i think i'll give a pass to people who do gravel rides as long as they are not near a location that you're comfortable with like they're out like you know you're gonna go do the rift in iceland like maybe you want something sort of organized and sort of pre-plan for yourself than just going and not that you can't go just like ride iceland but maybe that sort of helps motivate you but you don't need to do ones that are like an hour away from your that you on roads you normally ride i'm not against events to be clear i do a lot of them i do tons of gravel events in ontario most of them well outside of the toronto area and it's just the prices it's the higher they go the more i gotta you know reconsider which ones i'm gonna do and which ones i'm not and that's i you know i'm not even gonna i think tony last episode he went into the rant about the ontario cycling body and cyclocross races because that's even crazier but gravel events which have a good turnout like there's actually a lot of people going it's just cycling's already such an expensive sport like to also do these events is i would just love to see like the price stay the same or only go up by like a couple like three percent not 10 or 20. D2R2 in New England, though, worth it. Incredible course, totally, really yeah. well-organized event too. So I, I wouldn't lump them into that that bucket of sort of ill-organized, too expensive events. I would say that one is really worth it. Can I, guys, can I just go back? Because we were talking earlier about the vegan cyclists who organized a free event. And just because we were talking about narcissism earlier as well, I just want to give the vegan cyclists another shout out, which there was a fair amount of narcissism in that, but that dude is such a strong rider. Like, it's incredible. He posted a video or sort of a photo of himself on Instagram earlier in December looking absolutely ripped. He was on Zwift without a shirt on. The guy rode for 13 hours at an average of 225 watts. Like, Gross. dude's got two kids. He runs a business. I don't know how he, he does that. And look, it was a highly narcissistic post that he did. And it goes completely contrary to what we said earlier about sharing less and not sharing your numbers and pictures of you and so on. So I will kind of throw him in the canal for that, but I'll also give him a cameo for his numbers because it's mind boggling. Plant-based diet. I've said in the past, I we were like jokingly saying who's worse, vegan cyclist or Phil Guyman. And I said it was obviously Phil Guyman and partly because vegan cyclist, he's He's just some guy who's turned himself into this incredibly strong cyclist. So I, he yeah, seems I like a really, but vegan cyclist just seems like pleasant to be around. Like he just seems like a nice guy overall. I, I like the vegan cyclist personally. I, I not a vegan will never be a vegan. I'm a hundred percent meat eater, but love the vegan cyclist. Okay. Well, one last thing for me, and that's going to be a bit of a boomer take to complain about the weather, but like 
2023 has just been so bad from a weather perspective. It has been absolutely awful in my area. It was forest fires, then it was just rain, 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 like all the time. Gravel roads were just muddy, uh, just just awful. And, and you know, I always can have the Festive 500 and I absolutely hate the Festive 500. But this year, there's no snow at Christmas. So usually I'm kind of sneaking a ski day or two, but that was not possible this year. So I thought, oh, great, I'm going to ride outside. I won't do the Festive 500, obviously, but I'll go out for like a 40K ride. And it's it's like six degrees Celsius, but just pouring rain all the time. If I could put 2023 behind me, from a weather perspective and just look forward to a sunnier 2024, that would be good because it's just been garbage. And I, again, I realize that's a boomer take to complain about the weather, but whatever, I'm going to run with it. It's just been so awful this year that I hope it's better. And I hope that's not what global warming is because it's going to suck for me if that's what it is. Yeah. This weather sucks. I want more, more sunshine in uh, 2024. Okay. All right. Well, that's it for the 2023 recap, 2024 Look ahead, Warren. Give me that freewheel sound, please. We will do a little news segment here. Uh, there's been a lot because we haven't, you know, again, we meant to do a Christmas gift for cyclists episode. We didn't get around to it and we're just busy uh, and also a bit lazy, I guess. So that didn't happen. But we are here for the news in terms of releases and kit. And okay, the first one. That is my element. It's what I want to talk about. Um, I have a lot of takes on this one, and we will do a fuller episode on watches because, again, I'm going to take credit for this. I think we started that trend talking about watches in cyclists in cycling. And guess what? A few months later, the brand that we love, Map from Australia, released a cycling watch. So I think that this justifies us doing a full episode on watches for cycling and we will do that shortly but i think we have to comment on the map unimatic watch that was released as a limited edition i think there's 1500 of them or something like that uh so the map unimatic cycling watch i will describe this so it's the unimatic map modello 4 so unimatic is an italian company um, so they describe it as a modern military style tool watch that delivers utilitarian function and a shared vision to merge aesthetics and performance. So that is very much the map ethos. They release this as a cycling watch. So something for you to wear while on the bike. And let me describe the watch. So it is the case is made of titanium. So it's a very light watch uh, on the flip side, though. Titanium doesn't really catch the light the way that steel does. So it won't like reflect very well, but it's going to be uh, very, very light. It has the shape, I would say, of a traditional sort of diver. Uh, does not have a turning bezel, though, with uh, minute markers on it, like you would typically see on a diving wa- on a dive watch. It has a fixed titanium bezel. Um, I'll comment on that a little bit later. And the bracelet that it comes in uh, is a sort of, I guess, rubber type bracelet that says "Map" on it. They also it also comes with a NATO strap as part of a huge box that they send you when you buy that watch the box is it's bigger than the omega speedmaster box it's like it's a big freaking box um so sorry i said the limited edition was 1500 it's actually a limited edition of 100 mm-hmm. uh, the size of the watch is a 40 millimeter watch so that's pretty standard for your typical sports watch if you look at most of the rolex professional line they'll tend to be around 40 millimeters uh some of them got a bit larger in recent years though but the traditional size is 40 millimeters 
again, comes in a huge plastic box. It sounds like you're carrying heavy weaponry in that thing. It, it's actually pretty ridiculous. Uh, and in terms of the watch, so it has water resistance of 300 meters. Uh, the case thickness is 12 millimeters. It's got a 22 millimeter uh, lug width. I will comment on that later. And the other thing that is interesting about this is it's a quartz movement. So it is a quartz movement. It's a Seiko uh, quartz movement. It is a sweeping hands quartz movement. So you got that kind of smooth movement of the seconds hand. Uh, the watch is mostly gray. I guess the tones are, are gray. Uh, it's got that diver. If you look at the dial, it's got that typical diver with the triangle at uh, zero or 60 minutes. It's got sort of hour dots uh, in general, except it's got rectangles at three o'clock, six o'clock and nine o'clock. The six o'clock rectangle, though, is horizontal, which is weird. You don't typically see that a lot. And I guess that's about it. That's the specs for the watch. Now, guys, again, this is kind of my I'm I'm the probably the biggest watch nerd on this podcast. So I have a lot of takes. I will give you an opportunity to dish out your takes before I go, because I think I'm going to have a lot to say here. Why don't, why don't I just go quickly, Tony, since I'm the, the least experienced watch person and you guys kind of got me interested in watches like two years ago. And just as like a, someone who knows almost nothing about watches, because I think you guys are going to have much more educated things to say. The price alone, which I think Alex left out, sixteen or $1,500. Yeah. Australian. So sorry, I messed up my my thing. I said it was a limited edition of 1500 It's actually 1500 bucks, and it's a limited edition yeah. of 100 watches. So there you it, go. It's 1600 Australian, around 1500 Canadian. What is that, like 1200 US? Anyway, when I see that amount of money for a quartz watch, is just crazy to me. Uh, and I already, I only own two watches and my first one was a psycho five sports watch, which this one I would, because it's also a dive watch looks quite similar and I paid 300 bucks for it. I think I got on sale, but one interesting thing you didn't mention, Alex, is it seems like it would actually be quite hard to look at while riding, like to actually look and read the time. Yeah. That's one of my main criticisms. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head. Anyway, but that's another, and then just the price, like I get it that, box it comes in probably costs a thousand dollars on its own but it's just the price i just i saw a lot of people chirping the price on instagram and stuff so we're definitely not alone but it, those people maybe don't know a whole lot about watches because we did have a few dms from people um and there was a few people who seemed to know a bit about watches who actually didn't totally hit it but anyway just for me the price is just it feels like just so outrageous such a like partnership I don't want to call it a cash grab. It just, I don't know. You can get so many, you could get multiple nice watches for that price or like one really, really nice watch for around that price point. And that's kind of my, that was my gut reaction when this first released. I first want to say we love MAP. And I mean, if you listen to our MAP interview, I went off on the whole history of how much I love them and how important they are and stuff like that. But I think we've always said that even brands we love, when they when they have a miss, we'll mention that it's a miss. And this is a huge miss. We are a pro MAP podcast. Yes. Yeah. Sure. But this is a, this is a huge miss, uh, a huge missed opportunity. I think Alex will probably be able to say everything that I'm thinking of saying. But one thing that I am actually not even going to criticize MAP for I'm going to criticize Unimatic for because they do make some watches with, um, you know, they do make automatic watches that automatic movements. I don't know if if they do in house. I didn't look that deep into it, or if they're getting like ETA movements or something. But because this is a kind of a market that would maybe be different than their typical market, automatic watches are usually what gets people kind of the bug, which will 
eventually get them into the collecting and you know spending more and more money and so you think from a unimatic standpoint they'd be saying like trying to push map to be like let's do an automatic watch because if we can grab that kind of audience to sort of that aren't used to watches that are garmin watch wears apple watch wears and they're going to get a mechanical automatic watch maybe they'll get the bug and maybe they'll get them to buy sort of more and i'll get them to buy more unimatic automatic watches you know i think that that lots of issues with what map sort of done but it, it is a partnership and i think unimatic had a a huge miss for for putting of course watches and what people essentially will feel they're sort of you know, they're buying the brand uh, map as opposed to like a quality watch and we'll sort of feel they just bought a really expensive Casio. Which by the way, sorry, my last take is that if you do want a great quartz, sturdy watch to ride on all sort of terrain, the you know, colloquially known Casio or the G-Shock, uh, sorry, remind me, Alex would probably remind me, it's the GLS 2000, I think, is like 120 bucks, quartz movement, great watch, robust, can be ridden anywhere. Okay. All right. Where do I start? So again, I like map a lot. They've made some of my favorite kits. I think map generally do things very well. And they, I feel like map usually properly researches what they do before they do it. And the result is usually good. This here, I don't think was done very well. And I'll, I'll explain why. So I think, Warren, you touched on it. The legibility of this watch, which is your ability to quickly read the time just by glancing at your wrist, I think is, is, is quite problematic with this watch here. There's a few things wrong with the legibility. First of all, if you look at the dial, you know, the fact that it's, it's gray, white on gray, that's fine. You can see the hour markers well. Um, I don't know how I would do in a, in a very sunny environment, though, which is usually why you'll have a black dial for your for your divers because by having a black dial you have more contrast between the hour markers and the dial and therefore it'll be more legible this one i don't know how it would perform in the sun but i think it's fine what they've done what is really bad though from a legibility standpoint is that if you look at the dial at 11 o'clock they have a diagonal map logo that's right there which is exactly the length of the hours hand on the watch so essentially, let's say you're you're going downhill, you're going 50 kilometers an hour, you're kind of negotiating potholes and cars or something, and then you happen to look, okay, am I, am I late getting home? You look at your glance at your wrist. Well, not only do you have to figure out where the hours end is, but you also have to deal with this map logo, which is at 11 o'clock, which adds to the complexity of reading the time. I think that is a major design fail from from. So I understand that it's cool to have that map design in diagonal there, which map do that a lot on their kit. But on a watch, that's actually really bad because it interferes with your ability to read the time. Secondly, the horizontal uh, rectangular hour marker at six o'clock doesn't make any sense. That's not usually not how watches are designed. I think that takes away from the legibility as well. And my other main complaint about the design of that watch is that the bezel on the watch is a huge missed opportunity. First of all, it's a giant bezel. It is so chunky. It is so bulky, but they don't have turning. It doesn't have a turning function like you would have on a dive watch. It doesn't even have minute markers like Arabic numeral minute markers. It's just like a chunk of metal that sits there doing absolutely nothing for you and taking away from the, from the watch. And you kind of wonder, well, is it, what is it like? Is it a dive watch? Is it, you know, is it a field watch? What is it? It doesn't have the functionalities of, of either. 
and it, it doesn't very look good. It just adds to the bulk of the design, doesn't do anything. The other thing from a design perspective that I don't really like about this, that's a 40 millimeter watch, which is fine for a sports watch, but it's got a 22 millimeter lug width, which means that the, the width of your bracelet is going to be overly large relative to the case size of the watch. Like typically for a 22 millimeter lug width, you would want like a 42 or 43 millimeter watch. So that, you know, it makes for a very wide bracelet relative to the watch. And finally, Warren touched on it. The The fact that it's a quartz movement, I think is kind of disappointing. Um, if you're selling a watch at that price, one would think that you're appealing to watch enthusiasts and watch enthusiasts will kind of struggle to get excited for a quartz movement, generally speaking. Someone actually sent us a DM and said, well, the reason why they do this is because when you're riding the vibrations on the automatic movement would be too taxing on the movement and it would mean that you would need to service it more frequently. But honestly, I don't think that's true. Um, you know, a lot of watches are very robust. They've been built to be military watches used in kind of, you know, situations where there's a lot of vibrations, et cetera, and you wouldn't require more. And honestly, I, I think what they're, they're probably aiming this watch at kind of high beasts or people who don't know too much about, about watches. Uh, so obviously the, and the watch community is pretty nerdy about these things. I mean, I just went on a rant here that I think exposed how nerdy I can be about this, but I am sure that the watch nerds of Reddit or the internet in general just, you know, didn't like this release, obviously. So I don't think it was aimed at that, but I generally think I, I was very surprised that MAP released this. I, I kind of wish they had thought about these things ahead of time. And, and Unimatic is actually a respected uh, maker of watches. So I'm surprised that Unimatic didn't tell them, hey, maybe let's not do that. Like, let's do it a little bit different. So I, I wish it had been done differently. Uh, honestly, if, if people are looking for an alternative to the MAP Unimatic watch, one that in my opinion looks nicer and is potentially a better watch would be the well, formerly the Seiko SKX 007, which was discontinued and turned into the Seiko 5 Sports that both Warren and Tony own. Um, and I think that has served them very well on rides. I'm not surprised they did this. I, I To be honest, I kind of expected Panoramal to do a watch uh, collab release first, but the part of the negative reaction for me is disappointment because like when they teased a watch, I was like, oh, that could be interesting. And that, to, as Tony said, I think it's almost like I'm more disappointed because it's from MAP and it, it feels like a miss, you know, and maybe they'll rebound and release something even cooler in the next year or two. There's no reason why I would buy something like this over the Psycho 5 Sports I've been wearing the last two years on almost all the riding I do. And it's been great. No issues. Really legible for riding. Um, people be like, why do you need a watch? You can read your time on your Garmin. Well, you can take the time off your Garmin if you have it and, you know, have less fields and blah, blah, blah. Anyway. And you can uh, not use your Garmin too. Or that. Yeah. Or that, which I, but I, I've said before, I, I love the data. I think there's going to be more. I, I could see if Panoramal doesn't have a, a watch collab in the works, or if they didn't before, they definitely do now. So put it this way. I like that they did a watch, and I was really excited when I learned that they were doing a watch, but I was really disappointed when I actually saw the watch. Yeah, I, I'd agree. And I, Well, I want, let's say one uh, positive thing, which is I think the case back is pretty nice. Yeah, the case back is nice. It is probably the only thing that no i agree i think the the sort of circular map logo 
um, you know, on, on the case back is pretty nice. And I'm, I'm actually happy they didn't do an open case back because that would have been lame. I mean, open case back for a quartz movement makes no sense. Instead, they did a kind of a cool design thing on the case back. But again, you don't really see the case back, right? When you're when you're wearing it and looking at it. So um, it's, it's unfortunate that that's the only positive thing we have to say. But also just, just to add to our earlier uh, New Year's resolution thing, I would like to see more people with, um, let's just call them analog watches, like not the Garmin, not the Apple you know, people just wear watches. It's, it's a, like I said, sometimes I don't, often I don't write with the computer. So I actually do need to tell the time that was sort of reaching into my pocket, pull my phone. And also it's just a great accoutrement to your cycling outfit. I just think it adds a lot of style. Um, we've teased, you know, an upcoming special that we'll just talk about watches with, uh, with a special guest. And you'll see that uh, cycling and watches have a, have a, have a great history together. Okay. All right. Moving on to the next uh, topic we were going to talk about. And this, what, this one is actually not so well, I guess it is kind of a style element and it's the UCI banning angled in brake levers in 2024. So again, the UCI just being the, the no fun police coming in to ban the extreme inward inclination of brake levers for the 2024 season as part of the world tour. Um, essentially, they're saying that this is on the issue of safety saying that from the UCI's perspective, they are concerned that that extreme inward inclination of brake levers is taking away from the performance of the braking and that it is a danger to riders to the same extent that the super tuck was a danger to riders. So the UCI kind of taking away an aesthetic thing that riders do. I think, I mean, is it fair to say, guys, that we all kind of angle in our, our brake levers a little bit? A little. I don't think to the, the degree which has resulted in UCI banning it. Like mine are like very, like from far away, probably not noticeable. More noticeable on my like cross bike. I do it a little more because I just, it's not actually for aerodynamics. It's more for like uh, control off road and on single track. But yeah, I, I do a little bit, but not like the not like the borderline sideways ones you sometimes see. So I find it more comfortable when your brake levers are a little bit angled in because you're, I don't know, I just find my shoulder blades tend to be a little more compact when when I do that. And from a, from a position perspective, I find it more comfortable. But I guess UCI is concerned about safety. I would say pro riders started doing this. I'm not sure what the original reason, if it was to be kind of more tucked in and more arrow or if it was for looks, but that sort of creeped into the, the amateur peloton with average Joes and average Janes kind of angling in their brake levers to look pro. But now the UCI is canceling that. So what what is our take on that? My take, and it's kind of unfair, and it doesn't really relate to the pro peloton. Whenever I see this in the wild, the like really dramatically uh, angled in levers, Either they actually race. Skylar, she she has her levers quite angled in quite dramatically, but she races. So I give her a pass on that. But the only other people I really see doing it are sort of like, you know, cycling hype beasts who are really like usually wearing Panormal, uh, which that's kind of the unfair comment. Uh, those are the people I tend to see it. And I just, those people often don't actually race. So I'm just curious as to, do you really need to angle in your your levers that far for like you know your your fast group ride i don't know so i love the look of the slightly tilted in i actually when i got my 
you know, had the issue with the Marinoni and it got rebuilt when they sort of put it back together. They sort of had them almost actually flared sort of outward a little bit. I don't know. They weren't really thinking. And, and it really does look worse, especially if they're flared outward. So I like the slight in. And I think that, you know, we can criticize the influence for copying, but the aesthetics are what are important. So I think it should always be slight in. But the really extreme in, it's not about, oh, let's criticize the certain type of person. It's that it sort of reminds me of like a guy on like a like a Canadian tire bike that's sort of like busted up. Like it's sort of when it goes too far, it looks like you, you crashed or something. It doesn't mm-hmm. it doesn't offer that sort of nice streamline aesthetic. Like it starts to look like you've you've crashed and then sometimes you see and they're sort of not they're they're not tilted in symmetrically. Uh, you know, it's kind of hard to get that angle to look right. So I think, you know. Let's let's just avoid extremes. I think the slight tilt in is a, is a much better look than sort of them being dead straighter. Especially if if your if your brake levers flare out, then you got big issues, right? Like that should be that you say. I better make sure they're banning flared out brake levers and flared handlebars, which is a whole other thing. I don't like those. Yeah, you make a good point about the crash, Tony. Because as somebody who crashes fairly often in cyclocross races, like often what'll happen is you know, whichever side I fell on, my shifter will get leaned in really far. And I always have to like, you know, you straighten it a little bit during the race to get it back reasonable if you can. So it does kind of look busted up when I think about it. Okay, next uh, release we're going to talk about. So we didn't do our usual review. I guess we'll do it maybe next year as the kits sort of slowly drop from each uh, UCI World Tour team. But I think this one is a big one, and we need to comment on that because that was, I think, potentially the consensus best kit in the pro peloton of the last few years, or one that has generally gotten props pretty consistently from us. And it's Ajay Dozer Citroën's 2024 kit, which was revealed, and you will not believe what they did. They took out the signature chocolate bibs that I would say was the cornerstone of that kit. And they replaced it with uh, just boring black bibs, basically. And essentially what, what happened there is that the team now has a partnership with the uh, French uh, sports gear store Decathlon, uh, which is which is in Canada now, which is, which is quite present in Canada. And the team is now rebranding at uh, Decathlon AG2R La Mondiale. So they're dropping Citroën, the car maker, as a, as a title sponsor. And essentially, they are going sort of all in on the Decathlon coloring, which is this sort of baby blue color. And the kit has is made by Van Riesel, which is the Decathlon house brand, which we've talked about there kits in the past. I think, Warren, correct me if I'm wrong, I think they used to make the Cofidis kit before, yeah, last right? Year. Last yeah, year. and so now, now they're pivoting to, to AG2R's new kit. And what is happening on this kit is that you have, um, you know, diagonal line on, on the jersey, which says Decathlon in massive white lettering on baby blue. The top part of the kit is baby blue. It's got ribbing on the sleeves. So the sleeves are ribbed and it says AG2R La Mondiale on them. But then at the bottom of the kit, you have black bibs, essentially. So they ditched the uh, chocolate bibs. And I guess white was a pretty prominent color of the former Ajay kit. It was mostly the, the main coloring, I would say, was uh, chocolate and white. Now it is much more sort of baby blue, white, and black uh, is the direction that they've gone in. And 
you know, I think a lot of the commentary on that kid on, on the internet has been negative. People compared it to some of the historically bad kids. Well, I, I actually would disagree that some of these were bads, but like Shazal or some person said that Cipollini's Zebra kit was bad. I, I actually think that was an awesome kit. Aquai Sapone, but regardless, I would say the, the reception has been negative here. What did you guys think? I'm going to go quickly because I actually already left a comment on the the team's Instagram account with the Cycling Fashion Week account, which just says something to the effect of like, you used to have the best kit in the Peloton and now you look like a, a local master's crit team. And that's exactly how I feel about this new design. Listen, I get it. You need to use the decathlon brand colors if they're your main title sponsor. You need the blue. But like you could have had baby blue bibs. You could have had white bibs. The black just feels lazy uh, and just safe. And that's more than anything what I don't like about it. And it just that like three color mix now just makes it look like any any kind of local race team. Like it to me is not very distinctive at all. And and that's really what I don't like about it. And they went from, in my opinion, was one of, if not the best kits in the pro Peloton, whether, you know, and I'd say that was the case many years, but especially in 2023, the, the white Jersey and Brown bibs was really nice. And yeah, that's, that's kind of it. I, it looks like a master's crit team. Yeah. I don't have much to add. I mean, it's just, it's so disappointing. Um, and I mean, I guess this is sort of the cycle when so many, you know, sponsors come and go and, and a lot of what the kit design is relies on those sponsors. So this is, you know, an extremely disappointing, uh, like you said to, I mean, to lose the Brown bibs, but again, big, you know, decathlon's a, a title sponsor now, and they're going to want their, their colors to sort of represented, but there was so many more clever ways they could have added, especially knowing how iconic the Brown bib was. I think Warren's idea, the baby blue, uh, or sort of light blue would have been incredible just sort of to add that nod of like, Hey, we're doing, you know, we're going to do bibs a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, could have been very complimentary, but they, they, they totally missed out here. Uh, and, and I mean, I'm just hoping it's, it's not sort of signs of things to come in terms of <laughs> the release of sort of new kits, uh, of anything we like, or maybe it's a sign that if, if the best kit falls off, maybe, uh, uh, what are they called now? Jayco will uh, design a good kit. My take is I can't take anyone wearing a baby blue kit like that seriously. The the baby blue color just just makes this thing look ridiculous. I realize it's the decathlon color, but it it's just not a good color for kit overall. I think royal blue is fine, electric blue, and even navy is fine. The baby blue just unfortunately looks a bit ridiculous. Which, which is sad because I feel like if there was a Quebec national champ kit, it would probably be baby blue as well. But the yeah, this is just bad. And with the black, it, it does not look good. Um, that's probably a two out of ten for me from from the, from Age de la Mondia. On the more positive side, though, we have the Bora Hans Groa kit, which was released, and Bora Hans Groa no longer has Le Col as their kit maker. This is made by Sportful and Bora Hansgrohe has gone in a slightly different direction. They have gone in a forest green. So they, they have one side of the kit is forest green and there's sort of a tone on tone there with the Hansgrohe logo on sort of a more turquoisey green, I would say. But the other sleeve and the other side of the kit 
is a lime, sort of a lime green or yellow, I guess, uh, color, which creates an interesting contrast. And what's really fun about this kit is that the bibs are forest green. So you have continuity from the top part of the kit to the bottom part of the kit, and you have that transition into the lime green on the right shoulder of the riders. And there's a, I'm not sure what that company is, but Ötztal, which um, I don't know, sounds like some German company, but they have like these red patches on their sleeves, which adds a nice touch of a different color, uh, which is obviously red uh, on the sleeves, which looks really nice. So I, anyway, for me, I, I like that. They say that the reason for the new color of the kit was to be more in line with the Skoda logo, which I think is one of their sponsors. So Skoda is the, uh, I think, Czech or Central European car maker in any case. Um, and yeah, that's a new kit from Bora. I've generally not liked their kit when it was Le Col making it, but now that it's sportful and there's been a bit of a design change, uh, I find that it looks pretty cool. So what did you guys think? Less is more. In the sense of, I, I don't think the addition of the other arm, the sort of lighter, the lime green was necessary. I think that, that the color choice of that sort of forest green, that dark green is a really nice color choice. I mean, I don't think that the, you know, the logo placement was particularly not, it's not like it's poorly thought out, but it certainly, you know, doesn't enhance it, but you got to have the logos on. But I just think, I just don't really understand the need for that. It seems like they're sort of over-designing it. There's nothing wrong with one solid color, uh, especially when it's a really, really sort of nice color like that. So I, I do like it, but I just think they could have completely avoided that that lime green or, or sort of yellow. It's hard to tell on my sc screen what exactly what it is. Um, just totally unnecessary, but uh the rest of it is, is is pretty good. I agree with you, Tony, that it does feel a bit over-designed, but for some reason, the lime green kind of works for me. And this actually kit was what prompted uh, that podcast hosted by two Australians to give us a shout out as they, they were talking about this kit and they realized they didn't know what they're talking about and they should... Uh, you know, give us a ring to see what we think. And they, they did like this kit and I, I do too. The little lime green shoulder works and I would go back to a point you often make, Tony, is I think it will make them stand out in the Peloton, that little pop of lime green. Um, and to be honest, when I saw this, it reminded me that I still want to buy a pair of lime green bibs from Attacker. So I, I need to do that. But overall, I, I like it and I, I think it'll stand out pretty well. But I, yeah, I can't disagree that it does feel a, a little over-designed. Props to Borahans Grow for their new kit. The last one we will comment on is... Um... I guess the team formerly known as Yumbo Visma, now known as Visma Lisa Bike. And maybe this requires a bit of background because I think it it fits well with the running theme of this podcast, which is the commercial ineptitude of pro cycling. When the, I guess the winningest pro team right now, which I mean, Yumbo, uh, I'm going to stop calling them Yumbo, but Visma, Visma Lisa Bike, which is, I guess, a bit of a dynasty right now in, in pro cycling. They're sort of the, the 2010s or 2000s New England Patriots. But in cycling, they just keep winning everything. When these guys can't even keep a title sponsor because the sponsor can't really see that it makes sense to continue to sponsor it, it really makes you question the commercial viability of the current business model that you have where companies uh, decide to sponsor teams. And the story there is that 
Yumbo is a Dutch supermarket chain where they have they had been involved in cycling for a long time and it seems like they were also involved in sponsoring motorsports but what happened is in September their then CEO a gentleman named Fritz van Erd was arrested for suspicion of money laundering the company had some difficulties and so they began to pull their sponsor their sponsorships from sports they pulled money from motorsports at that time uh, they said they took a critical look at their activities in motorsport the only exception to that was their contract with Formula One champion Max Verstappen. So they kind of decided that cycling had to go, but Max Verstappen was good. Somehow that was bringing in money. Uh, regardless, uh, you know, Visma, which is a Norwegian IT business, decided that there's no news on their status with the team, so they continue. So fast forward, and now we have Visma Lisa Bike. Kind of a ridiculous name when you think about it, but it is it is what it is. At least I guess the sponsor is involved in cycling. Anyhow, this brings me to the kit. They have released their kit. And I mean, guys, we're going to be honest here. It's pretty similar to the previous years. It's it's black and black and yellow. So pretty recognizable. Has the Visma logo, you know, in, in massive lettering on, on the front. What is different about this one, though, is the kit has sort of a honeycomb pattern at the bottom of the shirt. So like, alveoli i guess you would call them in in english and uh that has led to people calling the team the killer bees uh which i think is a name that will probably stick with them uh anyway that's pretty much the only change they still have the the uh the accented e on the shoulders uh for cervello which makes their ugly bike that they ride um and the bibs are black the socks are white and yeah pretty pretty uh pretty i guess good continuity on that kit i do like the the honeycomb personally i'm i like bees i like flowers i i think that's that's nice uh but other than that nothing else to add other than uh, i wanted to mention that little story with the ceo uh, embezzling money because i think it's a nice touch where when your sport relies on the benevolence of oligarchs and companies that get involved in money laundering i think it should lead to a questioning about the business model of the sport I was going to say, I, I feel like the embezzling money is pretty classic cycling. And then just one other thing I was going to note it reading the press release. Apparently they've used the honeycomb before. Uh, I don't remember seeing it, but anyway, the Richard Plug, the, the team principal mentioned that they're retaining that. So honestly, I've never noticed it, but that, I just wanted to call that out. So I would add again, less is more. I actually hate the honeycomb. I think it's uh, unnecessary. I think that I like the kit. I think that, you know, it's their yellow. It's nice. I, I, you know, I've always felt the, the sort of font and the Visma logo was a nice for a sponsor logo. Uh, you know, obviously the hierarchy, Lisa bike is, is a pretty stupid name. Um, but they've sort of done a decent job integrating it. Uh, I like the texture on the sleeves, which I'm sure is more for sort of performance and aerodynamics, but I think from an aesthetic, uh, perspective, it's very nice, but I think the honeycomb is just another, it's an addition of absolutely nothing, nothing necessary. Uh, that sort of, they're so prominent that, uh, Visma yellow, they didn't need to add anything to stand out. I think that it's, it's totally, I think they should have just done exactly the same kit, but just no honeycomb. And I think it would have been you know, a, a knock out of the park. No, I don't, I disagree with the honeycomb. I think it's, it's, it's sort of, it, it sort of evokes a, like, uh, you know, a mountain equipment co-op starter Jersey. That's trying to be kind of fun and funky or something. It, it's not for me at all. I don't like it. For our non-Canadian listeners, mountain equipment co-op is sort of the equivalent of your REI in the U S or 
decathlon really i guess in uh in europe uh except more like yeah it's an outdoorsy store chain anyway so i see what you're saying i'm just curious what the connection to the honeycomb is like do they have a honey sponsor or is it just that they want to be called the killer bees i'm i'm not sure i'm not going to say much more than what you guys already have because i think you've covered it i will say that i actually like the white socks with the yellow and and black bands that tie in with the rest of the kit because i find often pro teams socks are like an afterthought except for like ef they usually you know with the mismatched pink socks i think this year or the year before things like that they put thought into it otherwise it's usually just like a white arrow sock or maybe a black arrow sock and and that's it so i i just appreciate that they've put some thought into connecting the socks to the to the kit and the the white bottom still allows it to flow nicely into the white shoes that they're the four riders in the uh, press release are all wearing wout Van go and i don't know so by the way lisa bike is an interesting business it's a it seems like a german company that does bicycle leasing working with employers and employees where it seems like they work with employers so that a company would lease a bunch of bikes from i guess lease a bike and then provide a fleet of bicycles to their employees to commute to work um you know they say that it's sort of financially attractive for companies to do that it provides nice employee benefits it keep you know keeps employees fit um and they do that and it seems like they also do that with bike dealers as well i guess leasing a bike the same way you would lease a car um so pretty pretty interesting i i guess i don't know the, the only difference though is the purchase price of a bike is tends to be a little lower than the purchase price of a car although these days i guess it depends uh but i just wonder if the sponsorship makes sense to the extent that people watching pro races who will see lease a bike on the jersey of the visma team do you think that the watchers already own a bunch of bikes i would venture to say the av the over under is 2.5 bikes per viewer on average i'm not sure they will be willing to lease a bike but anyway that was just a, an aside here listen it's part of cycling dumb team names but i to me it just sounds like the team's riding leased bikes which i guess technically they are they don't the riders don't own the bikes and then as has been pointed out by many people on the internet if you use the acronym of lisa bike it's the team could be called Visma Lab, which is maybe not the best look for a team that had not doping accusations, but, you know, Jonas Vingago doing that insane time trial during the tour last year and that kind of thing. It's just kind of funny. Would you would you prefer Visma Lisa Bike or Visma Launder Money? <laughs> <laughs> Was Jumbo using the team to launder money? I don't think so. I think it was. I think it was unrelated to the team. I think just Yumbo got into some issues with their their former CEO. I'd love to do an episode on just you know former uh, title sponsors and owners of title sponsors and just how many can we sort of fit in to have some sort of uh, yeah a legal issue or uh, human rights violation comes up human right violation like what can what you know what can we do and. <laughs> there's gonna be a lot I, I i sometimes with it you i mean I, I know that it didn't sort of start in the same way at the start of of pro cycling you know 100 plus years ago but since kind of this has been the model you're i'm actually sort of amazed it's lasted this long yeah like that 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 this is the model and there's still professionals and there's still teams and they're still able to put together 
you know, a race season because it's just such a bad idea to have all your money tied up in sponsors that have nothing to do with the sport are hoping to just like look for some random exposure and just constantly deciding it's not worth their time, not worth their effort or committing crimes. Yeah, I guess like the, you know, the, the problem is cycling again is you re- you rely on corporate benevolence and oligarchs as well, which hasn't gone historically very well. Remember Oleg Tinkov, right? Where he, yes. I guess he got into some financial issues, dropped off. I do want to give Oleg Tinkov a shout out though, because he came out and he actually paid a pretty heavy price for it, but he came out, he was one of the only Russians really to come out against the, the Ukraine war. And he denounced, uh, you know, Putin's, his words, fascism, which I guess I would agree with. Uh, and he renounced his Russian citizenship, lost billions of dollars for it, got banished. His businesses were seized and everything. Um, so, I mean, shout out Oleg Tinkov. I guess there's a cycling angle to this. Um, so one one oligarch, I suppose we can stand for. Was that before or after his uh, his tax charges in the U.S.? I, look, I don't know, but how many other oligarchs in Russia dared to do this, right? They, they're all scared for their money. And he actually criticized them too. He said they're more concerned about keeping their yachts or making sure that their children can party in Paris and London. Bring back uh, Tinkoff to cycling. Yeah, bring back Tinkoff. I mean, he has no more money, right? He It cost him a lot of money to to stand um, against Putin, but at least uh, at least he did it. Hey, what are you doing? I don't know, I'm just fucking tossing bikes in the river, bro. Uh, Next segment, into the canal, where we will do our last canal of 2023. First canal of 2024, depending on when we release this episode. We Again, we're in this floater of a period where, you know, time and space are are highly uh, theoretical notions between Christmas and New Year's. Um, I don't know about you guys, like I'm full of cheese and chocolate and Christmas cookies and wine. So I, I don't know where I am, but we will release this soon. Anyway, into the canal. Uh, Warren, what do you got? I'm going to canal what I will call bike films with films uh, in quotation marks. And what I mean by that is elaborate, high, well, high budget pieces of content relative to cycling the budget, I mean. Um, that like chronicle some epic race or event. What spurred this on is uh, Rafa recently released uh, a film called, sorry, quote unquote film called The Divide about Lachlan Morton's riding the Tour Divide route. And while he beat the official record, it didn't count because apparently on that course, it's supposed to be quote unquote unsupported, which means you can't have a film crew despite the fact that his film crew wasn't doing anything, but I guess they offer moral support, whatever. Anyway, I don't care about that record part. And it's an hour long. It's on YouTube. I think they've been going around doing screenings. It was directed by Lachlan's brother, Gus. So some of our viewers might be familiar with the thereabouts film series they did. And then the other ones they made for Rafa, which I'm blanking on what those were called. The thereabouts ones were quite good. Uh, I don't think those were directed by Gus, but Gus was riding in that. Anyway, it sort of led to Gus become this cycling or like sports filmmaker. And he makes beautiful looking movies. I think he's got pretty good taste in music. And this one, The Divide, is no exception. Like it's beautifully shot, amazing scenery. The soundtrack is quite good. 
why I'm throwing this kind of thing in the canal and not even this quote unquote film, because I actually quite enjoyed it. It's just the idea of making more of these. Like they're always kind of the same story. Uh, you know, if you've watched any other of these videos about Lachlan's uh, exploits of doing whatever, you know, riding for the Tour de France route and all the transfers and that kind of thing, it's just like Lachlan suffers a bunch. He powers through it, runs low on food. He thinks about quitting. He's got equipment things he's got to deal with, etc. But then he finishes it. But also, how many Lachlan Morton films can you make? Apparently a lot. <laughs> Not a lot. I mean, I, I, mean, I like the guy. Don't get me wrong, no, but it, there's just a lot of Lachlan Morton content out there. There is, but I'm not even talking just about Lachlan Morton content. I'm talking about all cycling content that are basically glorified race or ride recaps. Like, that's kind of what they are. Like, I have a theory. So you're saying the films are all the same. It's like he struggles, he powers through, he finishes it. I get it. And yeah. beautiful scenery. Like, they're all the same. I have a theory as to why there's always more of it. It's because cyclists need something to watch on the trainer. And this is kind of peak trainer content. Maybe it may. And maybe that's it. And you know what? I guess I shouldn't be complaining about more content about cycling. Cause th I think this kind of thing actually probably is more likely to get people into cycling than the tour de France or Harry Roubaix or anything like that, because it's one it's on YouTube and it's easy to watch. And two, it's easier to understand. I'm going to throw you into the canal for that take because I like the well shot cycling content. It gives me something to watch on the trainer. It's beautiful. It's inspiring. It's well shot. There's nice gear, nice kit. I want more of it. Uh, maybe diversify a little bit away from Lachlan Morton. I like Lachlan, but just get some other people in there. Maybe I, Warren, you're in the canal. I, sure, I'm in the canal, whatever. The main point I kind of forgot to make is there's already a lot of YouTube content. It's mostly from like all the gravel privateers, like everybody who races in the Lifetime Grand Prix makes- Our good 20, friend, vegan minutes. cyclist. Yeah, yeah. Well, he actually makes interesting videos. I'm talking about your, your. I don't know. I don't even, I can't even think of Ted King. Uh, the people- Or also like random, random Joes with a GoPro. Yeah, like, yeah and they make the 20- Who cares? 20 to 30 minute recaps about their like 38th place finish at unbound or something. And, and it's, it's the same thing. It's the same story. It's just GoPro footage instead with, and no music and a shitty voiceover. What I was really trying to say is these films are essentially just well-produced versions of race recaps like that. And I don't feel like you are gleaning any more insights or, or like profound things beyond what you get in a crappy 20 minute recap but i don't want i don't want it i just want the i just want the images i can watch while i'm on while i'm doing zone two on the train well i i don't think i have a canal or a camille i uh, i'm happy i have nothing negative to say about anything right now um so i guess festive 500 we kind of did it at the outset um spend time with your family folks don't uh, don't spend time riding in crappy weather at this time of year tony yeah uh, i'm gonna throw myself in the canal um specifically for my my uh need for influencers right now uh i've had a very sort of low motivation to hop on the trainer uh you know weather's been terrible i had kind of a, a quite a taper off to the season with not a lot of riding and i would say that the only thing kind of sometimes it gets my mind in, in to hop back on the bike hop back on the trainer is when i'm flipping through instagram and i see sort of a great shot usually someone on a standard and just kind of you know 
lets me romanticize cycling again. You know, uh, 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 you know, it's all the stuff we complain about and they're awful and it's all phony. It exactly, it totally is working for me right now. A shot of someone somewhere beautiful on a beautiful bike in a beautiful kit, uh, you know, is the only thing kind of reminding me of how much I love the sport and, and why I need to make sure I, I get a little bit of fitness back for the spring so I can really get out there and enjoy myself because there is certainly uh, nothing worse than being fit at some point in your, you know, s- cycling career losing that fitness and then getting back on the bike and just absolutely being in agony. Like it's, when it's your first time cycling, it's almost, it's almost okay. You understand that, but there's nothing worse than just losing all your fitness and, and your, 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 your sort of brain kind of tells you that you still have it and you go out and just suffer like you've never suffered because your body wants to push more than it can. But yeah, so throwing myself because, because I, I could, I complain about influencers and it's, it's such a rant, but Right now, that they're helping me, uh, they're they're helping me sort of visualize, do exactly what I guess they're sort of meant to do, sort of visualize a life I don't have right now. I just want to give Tony a cameo here because this is actually quite the the thought gymnastics that he used here. Essentially, Tony used the weather as an excuse for why he's not getting on the trainer, which is the <laughs> next level excuse. Like at least my excuse is that. I have a one month old and a three year old. So if I get four hours of sleep, it's a good night. So that is my excuse. Tony's excuse is the weather has been bad and that's why he's not getting on the train. That is some next level. And he has a nine month old too. And he's using the weather. <laughs> that is incredible. I, I love that one. Like that's the next level, you know, excuse. Um, you know, you said something about there's nothing worse than having been fit and no longer been fit. But if I listen correctly to my good friends from the Trainer Road podcast, if you have been fit at some point, it means you have that base and that base just wants to be awoken. And uh, essentially by just doing a bunch of zone two, you'll get back very quickly to a pretty respectable level. So stop looking at the weather and just get on the trainer, Tony. All right. After Well, after I've seen a few really nice uh, influencer photos on Instagram to sort of motivate me and maybe a beautifully shot race recap. Yeah. What, watch a Lachlan Morton film. I do want to clarify both Lachlan and Gus Morton are like forever chameleons for at least doing more than their weight in making cycling content better and more interesting, especially with the thereabouts movies. Um, so I apologize to them if for some reason they ever found their way to listening to this. It isn't personal. I just, I still feel that way. My canal stands, but yeah. I actually have a canal. I said I didn't have one earlier that it was, I was going to canal the festive 500, which is a, you know, standard canal at this time of the year. I actually have a canal and it's myself. And the (laughs) reason I just do that, the reason why I want to canal myself is because something interesting is happening with me guys, as I have more children and as I age and are in my late thirties, I have recently had more and more of a desire to ride gravel. And when I'm like sitting around thinking about cycling and kind of having FOMO about cycling, um, I've been wanting to ride gravel a lot more than wanting to ride road. And if I look at the riding I did this summer and this fall, it was overwhelmingly more gravel than road. And I don't know, I'm just more attracted like to the freedom of gravel and the 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 little roads with no traffic and the adventure of it and i i guess i'm really becoming a dad here and i kind of hate that because it means 
I'm going to get into this kind of gravel kit, the gravel fashion, which is awful as we know. And um, yeah, so I'm kind of slipping down that path and I'm going to canal myself for it. Between everybody's takes, we're all in the canal because Alex, you threw me in the canal and then you guys just throw yourselves in the canal. So that's a first, I think. We've definitely been in the canal each at some point, but I don't think all three of us have been in the canal in the same episode. Well, I think it speaks speaks to our great humility, Warren. And I guess credit to us for being probably the most humble podcast out there. Like at this, it's it's really interesting because at the same time, we are the global style authority on cycling, but we're these just mm. really humble guys too, really approachable. Like people approach Warren at, at, you know, group rides and events. And he's just like a man of the people talking to, to people. So that so you know, credit to us for canaling. Yeah. I'm humble as fuck. Okay, that's it for another episode of uh, Cycling Fashion Week, the only global podcast about Kit, the Kit Podcast, as the the Nero Show called us. Um, have a great 2024 to Cycling Fashion Week listeners. We hope that all your cycling dreams come come true this year. We hope that you up your Kit game, that you develop panache, which you undoubtedly have already if you listen to this podcast. So, wishing our listeners. A great 2024. Uh, we are thanking our listeners for being there with us, even though our production quality sucks and we are relatively uh, inconsistent in our uh, frequency with which we release podcasts. But we are um, very grateful that we have you as listeners and we will continue to put out content in 2024. So thank you, everyone, and have a very happy day.